This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. The Chancellor is, as we speak, preparing his spring statement and the pressures on government spending are only increasing. Despite Jacob Rees-Mogg saying on Friday that tax levels are abnormally high and the Conservatives need to get back to being a tax-cutting government, the spending requests aren't going anywhere. This week we've heard Liz Truss talk about the need for more defence spending, while you have Tory MPs pushing for cost-of-living easing um, to help their constituents. Kate, before we get, I think, to defence spending and how that might work, can you just give us a bit of an outlook on the general fiscal picture in terms of the demands on spending that we're seeing? It's not great. It's difficult times for the Chancellor. Rishi Sunak is very used to MPs, even in his own party, putting the demands on him for more spending. He, of course, became Chancellor just weeks before we really entered the COVID crisis. Not only did he have to oversee unprecedented amounts of peacetime spending, borrowing, you know, 350, 400 billion pounds in his first year as Chancellor, but, you know, he was spending on not just the emergency COVID stuff, but also how you were going to bring the economy back. He did eat out to help out. He had to come up with all kinds of innovative schemes, some more successful than others, to try to deal with just this crazy situation. And of course, that led a lot of his own MPs to say, well, this is an opportunity to try to get more money for other things, not least the prime minister, who decided that this was the moment to bring in social care reform that, frankly, certainly in the medium term, has nothing to do with COVID and everything to do with protecting the, protecting the assets of the wealthy who now won't need to sell anything off in order to pay for their own care. So he's used to this to some extent. The problem is the fiscal headroom that he has been quite cautious with because he he wants to use it for tax cuts leading up to the next election is dwindling by the day. And a lot of that stuff is out of his control. Even before Tory MPs say we want more money for defense or we want more money for cost of living subsidies or the rest of it. If you look and this, you know, this is very technical, but it's really important. If you look and what it's costing us to service the debt, meaning basically to pay off the bills that we already owe month on month, it's going up by billions and billions of pounds. And the Chancellor has warned about this for a year, saying if inflation and rates go up by even 1%, I have to find tens of billions of pounds to cover that cost. You don't Warned get- to the spectator. Indeed. You don't get nurses for that. You don't get new schools for that. You don't get more defense spending. You don't get more military equipment. You're just paying off old bills. And we're now seeing that. You know, inflation, the Bank of England predicts, will hit 8%. Inside Whitehall, they think it's probably closer to double digits. Interest rates are slowly but surely going up. The market now thinks they'll hit 2% next year. Historically still low, but that is billions and billions of pounds the chancellor has to find. So, you know, these are these are difficult times for the chancellor to be navigating a party that wants more spending, wants tax cuts, and also hasn't fully accepted that it has to pay off its old bills. I think just to zoom out for a second, I think that there are kind of fundamentally three problems, right? One is we have an aging population, which means kind of ever-growing demands for spending on health and social care. The second is we have low growth. You know, the trend growth rate of the British economy now appears to be something like kind of 1.6%. You know, I remember when I started at The Spectator, it was regarded as 2.2%, and everyone was worried that that was about how low that was. And if growth is this low, it's very difficult to deliver the kind of tax revenues you need to fund, you know, the the social services that an ageing 
wealthy society demands. And then I think the third problem is that there was a peace dividend at the end of the Cold War. And the UK, along with most other European, Western European societies, aggressively spent that on health and welfare spending, which is the kind of spending that is the most difficult to unwind because people really feel that. We are now clearly... It is hard to claim when you look at the geopolitical situation with the first example of a sovereign state invading another sovereign state in Europe since the Second World War, Chinese threat to Taiwan. You know, it's hard to claim that there is much of a peace dividend right now. You know, the military spending, as, as you said in your introduction, Katie, is going to have to go up. So how do you balance, how do you, how do you resolve this trilemma of an ageing society, no peace dividend, or the, lot, the, the, the peace dividend being taken away, essentially, and low growth? And James, just on that, those um, defence spending requests, so I mentioned Liz Truss. I mean, Jeremy Hunt's gone further in terms of what he's calling for, saying that the UK should spend as much as the US currently does. Do you think this is going to be the new consensus that there has to be defence spending? And therefore, where do you think this is going to come from? I, I think there is definitely going to be a cause for more defence spending. And I think there are, I mean, first of all, there is obviously the geopolitical situation. Secondly, there is the fact that Germany is planning to increase its spending to 2% because the German economy is so much larger than the UK's economy. The UK, if the UK wants to remain the largest defence spender in Europe, the second biggest defence spender in NATO after the US, it is going to have to increase defence spending. And I think a lot of Tories think that this is a kind of very important to how to the UK's power and influence in both Washington and European capitals. And so it should be kind of reluctant to give that up. And I think the third reason is, you know, the UK wishes to have a role in both the security of its own North Atlantic neighbourhood and also in the Asia-Pacific. Just look at look at the AUKUS deal that, that you've written about. And so I think that this, this debate is going to get there. And I mean, there is going to be a, a, a broad Tory desire for more defence spending. I think whether it rises to the levels that Liz Truss and Jeremy Hunt are talking about, I think is another matter. I think they are deliberately pitching high in the hope of, you know, I think, I think we speak, the UK spends about 23 or 2.4% of GDP on defence, depending on how you calculate it, whether you include pensions and military pensions and the like. I think getting that up to kind of 2.5, heading towards 3, is, is more realistic. And that's why I was so struck, Katie, by what you wrote in the I column and your, your suggestion as to how that might be achieved. Yes, well, Kate, I was saying that one of the ideas that's beginning to gain some traction and could be a way you're looking at all the various restraints, the fact that for the various reasons we've just explained, you're not going to really see Rishi Sunak wanting to borrow more to put in defence. You're not really going to see Rishi Sunak wanting to raise taxes. We're about to get the national insurance one. There's been very painful. And also Jacob Rees-Mogg's comments, I don't think you get that even through the party. And therefore, are you going to have to cut from other areas? Now, the foreign aid spend is currently 0.5. There's been a commitment from the Chancellor to bring it back up to 0.7. But you can see a world, if you look to the Cold War period, which Liz Truss was referring to, is when there was higher defence spending. During that period, less was spent on foreign aid. Do you think that would be one way to look at it? What other things do you think could be used towards defence spending? It's certainly a way that the Tory party could frame it. Um, I know there has been pushback in the Tory party with that cut to 0.5%, but foreign aid in general is is a more skeptical concept, not even concept, but what it has been spent on in the past. You know, a lot of that money now going to countries that we would certainly not want to be spend, sending it to, like China and others. Um, you could certainly argue that that money could go to defense spending instead. Katie, to your point, borrowing and taxes are two ways to find money, but they're 
essentially ruled out because you, it's very difficult to argue to borrow more money with inflation this high. And also the last thing that any of the Tories want to do is raise taxes. So you can look to cut in other areas. I mean, I think that there's some really obvious stuff. Even grandstanding infrastructure projects at home would be much better diverted spending to, um, you know, preparing our infrastructure for defense and protecting ourselves abroad. The other thing, to James's point about low growth, is you can reform your policies to go for growth. The problem with both of these things is that the prime minister has more or less ruled doing them out. He does not want to be seen as the austerity prime minister, and he also does not want to take the really bold political movements to go for growth. Planning reform would have been the obvious one, and uh, that got cut off very quickly when he realized that there was going to be pushback in his own party. Some things got to give. And it seems more likely, especially given what's happening in Ukraine right now and this all happening in real time, that perhaps politicians for the first time in a long time could come together and say, okay, what realistically can we all commit to trimming? It will be a bit painful, but maybe that money could be diverted into defense spending. Or, and I think this would be more ideal, you finally commit to some of those more free market public policies like reforming planning and liberating business to to get higher growth figures. Unfortunately, this is a Tory party that despite having great rhetoric on that has just not seen it put into action. So something's got to give and the prime minister will have to decide out of borrowing, taxing, going for growth and cutting which one he wants to pick. And I should say, actually, he would probably pick borrowing, but I just don't think the chancellor is going to allow him to do that. I think on planning, you do see the, the, the problems in the planning form actually revealed by the Ukraine situation. So of the people who were airlifted out of Afghanistan, you know, about somewhere between half and two thirds of them are still living in hotels. But that's because accommodation can't be found for them because there isn't enough social housing in this country. The outside of London, private sector rents are going up by close to 10% a year. This is, this is all a problem of a lack of supply. And the situation is so bad that some of those involved in the Homes for Ukraine scheme are saying, look, you know, in the short term, getting people to donate their spare rooms, you know, or not donate, but do offer a kind of uh, nominal sum for donating, for offering their spare rooms to refugees, you know, that, that, that's going to work. And if, as I think we all fervently hope, that you, there, there is no guarantee of this, if the war in Ukraine is over in six months and the Russians have withdrawn, then you could see that this would work. These people, these families would be able to go back. These women, would, it is very largely women and children who've come here because the men have stayed behind in Ukraine to fight. You know, they could then go back to Ukraine and everything would have worked. But if in the, in, and there is a horribly large chance that this could be the case, if this turns into a long protracted conflict, and remember the Iran-Iraq war went on for eight years, um, what are you going to do in six months' time? You know, because I don't think it is really tenable to think people can live in people's spare rooms for, for, you know, for years at a time. And the situation with housing in this country is so bad that, you know, some of the people involved in the scheme think that you'll have to do kind of modular construction where you essentially assemble the various bits of a house in a factory and then take it to where you want to do it and, and prop it down there because there just isn't going to be enough housing for these people otherwise. And I think this is a real problem of our planning system because... And this is, this is what Michael Gove is in, I think, denial about at the moment for political reasons. You have to build more homes where people want to live. And you also have to accept that however successful levelling up is, you are still going to need houses in London and the South East. And the abandonment of the Oxford-Cambridge arc seems to me about one of the most short-sighted government policies I've seen in a very long time. Because 
the UK wants to be, as every Boris Johnson speech says, it wants to be a science superpower, a knowledge superpower, right? You have a triangle in London, Oxford and Cambridge with three of the world's top 10 universities in it. If you are not going to get economic growth there with a, with a subsequent need for more housing and population growth there, then, then, then we might as well all go home because the UK is clearly kind of done as a serious economic and, and therefore military power. And yet the government is backing off the Oxford Cambridge Art because it's worried about kind of objections to planning and infrastructure and more housing. You know, we've got to get serious about building more housing where people want to live. Now, obviously, that housing will be more popular if it is accompanied by proper infrastructure and it is attractive and built in styles that people like. But this idea that Boris Johnson was perpetuating in his conference speech, that, you know, that, that basically levelling up means we can build all the houses on, in, the, in the Midlands and the North and not have to build any houses in, in the South East, is properly for the birds. But James, politically... Does Boris Johnson have the authority or, you know, the ability these days to actually push something through which his MPs don't like? Because ultimately, number 10 right now seems to be operating in its newest, uh, you know, formation at the behest of MPs. And there are a large number who really don't like this. Yeah, I think I think the view of lots of people in Boris Johnson's inner circle is forget about, you know, not, I'm not suggesting the voters are hugely enthusiastic about building more houses in the southeast in those constituencies. Look at the Chamberlain and Amish and by-election. But the definite number 10 view at the moment is, you know, it's only Boris Johnson's MPs who can remove him before the next election. So let's keep them happy. And this policy wouldn't. I think one of the ways in which Boris Johnson has not got the arc of this parliament right is in... January 2020, the first policy he should have come forward with when his political capital was at its height was planning reform. Instead, he waited until he'd expended a lot of capital on handling COVID and the like before the proposals came out. But I, but I think you are right. I think that, sadly, planning reform is not going to happen in this parliament. And I do think that if a Tory government with a majority of 80 can't do planning reform, then I have a kind of horrible feeling that, that, that it might be one of those things but never gets done. Thank you, James. Thank you, Kate. Thank you for listening. And I'm also going to bring Kate back in because we've been giving a message to our listeners quite regularly and we think you're going to be a refreshing voice. Thank you so much. Well, it's a new accent and everything. Just a plug to our listeners that if you've enjoyed listening to us speak about uh, what the spring statement may hold, you can listen to us dissect it in person. You can watch us, listen to us, and be with us in the room. Uh, we're having our first Coffee House Shots live podcast back in person since the pandemic at the Emanuel Center. Next Wednesday evening, after Rishi Sunak delivers his spring statement, you'll have Katie, you'll have James, you'll have myself, and of course our editor, Fraser Nelson. If you'd like to get tickets, just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash spring. We hope to see you there. Wouldn't you like to have fun, fun, fun? How's about a few laughs, laughs? I could show you a good time. Let me show you a good time. The minute you walked in the joint.